0: Bible tonight, and we're going to make our way to the book of Psalms, Psalms chapter number one, Psalms chapter number one, and uh, we're going to look at this chapter uh, for our text and study this evening, Psalm chapter number one, it's got six verses, and um, I love several, I love preaching through the Psalms and uh, looking at selected Psalms, and uh, this is one of them that I've always loved and I believe is very beneficial for us to uh, to reevaluate and look at, and uh, I've taught the message plainly as this, the godly and the godless, the godly and the godless, and uh, you'll see that there's a contrast in this passage of these two people, the godly and the godless, the righteous and the unrighteous, and so let's read this text and glean some things from it tonight, and I pray that it would be a blessing to you. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Throughout the Bible, we have a a contrast, really, of two groups of people uh, throughout Scripture, Uh, and you'll see one of those Passages here is found here. We see this contrast. You see two groups of people. You see the godly and the godless, or the ungodly. You see the righteous and the unrighteous, saved and lost, believer, unbeliever, and uh, all of us are in one of these two groups. And so it's important for us to evaluate and ask ourselves: To which group do we belong? Which, what group do I uh, fit into? Um, is and we when we think about these two groups. Is it possible to see distinguishing marks? between the godly and the the godless? And the answer is most certainly yes, there is. Uh, If there was no distinguishing marks, there would only be one recognizable group of people in the world, right? Uh, And so we see through Scripture uh, that there are two groups of people, uh, those who are godly, those who are godless, those who know the Lord and those who don't. And so that's the comparison we find in our text. And this is a rich passage and shows us what the godly man looks like. But also shows us what the godless man looks like. Now, it's true that not every believer is as godly as they ought to be. We're a work in progress, aren't we? We're growing. We're being sanctified. Um, many, many might think that, well, if I get saved, why do I still struggle with sin? Uh, because you're not perfected the moment that you get saved. We look forward to that day. It's the uh, day of our glorification uh, when we. Uh, meet the Lord but uh, what we find is that there's an ongoing process of sanctification and there are marks in the Christian that show God in them and what we find in this text is those marks bore out uh, as the spirit of God is at work in a believer uh, because he's the one accomplishing that Uh, so this this passage it's a challenge to us it's a call to us as Christians uh, in the walk we ought to live but it's also a warning for the wicked. Uh, as you look at what the what the wicked are and what their future is, now as we open this text before we get into our our, our points here, I want to point out something because there's a there's a significant trait for the godly man here who's walking with God, uh, and that trait is central to the whole contrast of this passage, and it's in verse one. It's those first uh, four words It says, "Blessed is the man." That's really what launches off this contrast, blessed is the man, uh, and then you're going to see the contrast between the righteous and the unrighteous. The godly man here, he is blessed, he's blessed. Now, what does it mean to be blessed? Well, in short, the definition for that is happy, but it has a stronger sense than what we would call happiness in our modern day world, and that, that what we've described that way has a stronger sense than just typical happiness. It would refer more to a joyful spiritual condition of those who are right with God and have their satisfaction in Him. And I put a note in here of of John Gill's comments on this, and he says, The words may be rendered, "Oh, the blessedness of the man, or of this man. He is doubly blessed, a thrice happy and blessed man, blessed in things temporal and spiritual, happy in this world and in that to come. Um, Truly, the Christian is blessed. They uh, know what true satisfaction is because it is found in Christ alone. You know, our world around us looks to try to find happiness. They try to find this blessedness in all of the things and all of the pleasures of the world, right? And uh, they never satisfy man uh, because man is empty without Christ, his creator. Uh, Jesus uses the Greek equivalent of this term in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, verse 3 through 11 It's called the Beatitudes and uh, Jesus says blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the merciful, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and and on he goes. And so the psalmist says blessed is the man who is and does these things that we see in this text. And on the contrast to that, the godless man, the ungodly man, he is not blessed. He does not have this uh, that the blessed man has. So notice with me number one tonight. We see the godly man. You could probably put these points together by yourself without me even mentioning them. Uh, The godly man. So we see the godly man first in the first half of this psalm. But I want to point out to you uh, three things about him. Three things about him. And the first thing about him is that he is abstinent from the world or he abstains from the world, the ways of the world, the counsel of the world and how the world thinks and how the world operates. He's he's separate and he's different from the world in which he lives. In verse 1, notice what he says, what it says, "Blessed is the man" and here's the description of this man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Now, there's a lot of counsel in this world, isn't there? What is counsel in simple terms? It would be advice, instruction, Uh, guidance, Uh, we would refer to that as counsel. But we think of counsel, is all counsel good? Should we follow everything that we hear? The answer to that is no, right? We know that there's godly counsel, and then there's also ungodly counsel. And so what you find here is that the godly man, this blessed man, he discerns what is ungodly counsel, and he does not follow that counsel. He does not follow the counsel that would be uh, of the wicked. That's specifically what the psalmist says. It's counsel of The wicked. So this godly blessed man, he's able to discern this, uh, the difference between good counsel and bad counsel. And I think probably one of the great problems among Christians today is that they're heeding a lot of ungodly counsel. Because there's a lot of ungodly counsel in the world. And some ungodly counsel sounds like good counsel. But it is not good counsel. Um, I, I have talked with people many times who have told me what they've done why they did it, and said, so, well, who told you to do that? And they say, this so-and-so said this, this person's not even a Christian. Uh, it, it's so easy if we're not careful to fall into heeding ungodly counsel, counsel that is not rooted in Scripture. Uh, there's a lot of counsel that's not rooted in Scripture, but rather is rooted in worldly ideology, uh, emotional impulse, the trends of the culture, uh, fleshly pleasure. Uh, counsel abounds around us and it's not all good you know one of the most common forms of counsel today we hear is this little statement and you're going to love it right just follow your what heart you've heard that Uh, I've heard that a thousand times and it's still a common thing well just just follow your heart follow your heart that's that's the kind of counsel that people heed even Christians do but you understand that that's some of the worst counsel you can follow your heart is desperately wicked. Your, your heart is evil. Your heart wants to gravitate towards sin, that which would please your flesh. So, so you have this kind of counsel. Then you got people who are famed for their counsel that is ungodly. People like Oprah, Jerry Springer, Joel Osteen, to name just a few. I, I mean, you have millions of people tune into them for their guidance on life. And uh, it's ungodly counsel. So if we're going to have godly counsel, we need to be able to discern the difference. Godly counsel will come from godly people, um, and that's why we should surround ourselves with people in our life who will help us in that matter. Uh, and I've given you several references through this, through this passage just to, just to show you. Proverbs 13.20 says, Whoever walks with, wise, with, with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. And that's exactly true. Iron sharpens iron. And so who we allow to influence us will make an impact on us. So uh, counsel here is important. It's very important for the Christian in walking in godliness. We've all had times when we needed counsel and maybe leaned on the advice of a trusted source for help. And if you are following ungodly counsel, it will lead you in an ungodly way. On the opposite side of that, if you follow godly counsel, it will be helpful to you in the right way. And I think we all would agree and know this, that the first and best counsel you can get is that of godly counsel, that which comes from the Lord. Uh, let me read, read a couple of scriptures here. Uh, Psalms chapter 33, verse 10 through 11, listen to this. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord shall stand the plans of his heart to all generations. You understand that there are purposes of God that are uh, greater and beyond us, and seeking his counsel, seeking what his will is, ought to be the, is the manner in which the Christian goes about it. Uh, Proverbs nineteen twenty one: many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Uh, counsel with God, seeking his counsel. Now, how can we get counsel from the Lord? Well, I think the first way is obvious, it's through the scriptures. If you want to be able to discern what godly counsel is, Um, do some compare and contrast with what Scripture says. Um, You remember what John said? He said, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they be of God or not. Um, There's a testing that the Christian should have in their mind in in not just believing everything we hear and just accepting everything we hear uh, as good, but discerning it in light of the Word of God. But beyond the Scriptures, I believe this too, that the Lord does use godly people in your life. And I think that is significant. I think we've all learned, uh, leaned on some godly counsel in our life before. Proverbs eleven fourteen says, "Where there's no guidance, a people fall. But in the abundance of counselors, there is safety." Often, if I have been pressed to make a big decision or a big decision was before me, uh, number one, I go to the scriptures and pray. But often, I would talk to other godly men who uh, I know I could trust. I know that these are men that are walking with God. These are men that. Uh, would not try to lead me wrong. They would give me their honest input. Sometimes their inputs conflict, and it shows you just our, our human perceptions that uh, maybe differ in a few things. Um, but by and large, we need godly counsel. So the godly man recognizes the difference here between the godly and the ungodly. So we've got to ask ourselves, what kind of counsel are we heeding in our life? What kind of counsel do we listen to? Uh, notice he continues, all right, with this blessed man. He continues in verse 1 and says that this blessed man walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Notice the next thing he points out. Nor stands in the way of sinners. Nor stands in the way of sinners. Now when you recognize in the scriptures this way, the term way, it's speaking of a path, a a road that would often be trod, right? And and so it's a path, it's a direction, it's, it's, it's 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 a guideway. And so there's a way of sinners. There's a path of sinners that is uh, ungodly that the godly man avoids. Um, now, everyone in this world is traveling a specific way and path that leads to a destination. You remember Jesus speaking about this on the Sermon on the Mount, but to those in his day? He said in Matthew 7:13, "Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy." that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. He's talking about a way, a path in which people go. And he says, many there be that find that destructive way. And so the godly are warned to avoid the way of the wicked, the path of the wicked. And so we see this with the godly man. Now, go with me to Proverbs for a moment and look at this clear contrast. I think this, this particular passage in Proverbs really um, sheds light on this Uh, subject of the way, the path uh, of the wicked versus the path of the righteous. Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 14 through 19, and notice this. Proverbs is is filled with wisdom, filled with practical application for the Christian. I would encourage you to to read it frequently and often. But notice what he says in Proverbs chapter 4 verse 14. Do not enter into the path of the wicked. And do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it. Do not go on to it. Turn away from it and pass on. For they cannot sleep unless they have done wrong. They, have robbed, they are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone to stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. So right there you have this description of the path of the wicked. But then look at verse 18. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. That's just a clear contrast passage of the path, the way of the righteous versus the way of the wicked. Uh, You know, you look at the world around us and those who are on the wicked way, the wicked path, um, all of them believe they're doing the right thing, right? They believe they're going down the right path. But notice what it says in verse 19. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They don't even know what they're stumbling over. And they're stumbling the whole way. Uh, But the path of the righteous is like that light of dawn. So we have that clear description of this way of the wicked. And so we ask ourselves, are we in that way? What way are we in? So the godly man here, this blessed man, he walks not in the counsel of the wicked. He doesn't stand in the way of sinners. And then there's a third aspect here. It says, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Sits in the seat of the scornful. Now, these scoffers, we know that the ungodly, they uh, are scoffers of God's truth and of God's way. They mock the way of repentance. They mock the way of faith. They mock the way of righteousness. They mock uh, the way of holiness. All that God reveals, they mock this. But the godly have a conviction that they will not sit among such scoffers, that they will not abide among such people as this. David wrote it this way in Psalm 26, 4 through 5. He says, I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. As you look at this passage here, it's almost as if you see somewhat of a downward spiral. If you begin walking in the counsel of the ungodly, you'll find yourself standing in the same way of the wicked, before you know it you'll be seated with them scoffing and scorning just as they do and so there's somewhat of a progression there I think we have a a, maybe a small example of this Uh, someone who went kind of in a downward spiral like this you guys remember a man named Lot what about Lot you remember how he was in his life remember when he and Abraham split up and uh, Abraham gave him the choice you know look here look there and whichever way you go I'll go the opposite well What did Lot do? He pitched his tent towards Sodom in the greener grass, right? But he didn't stay in the green grass outside of Sodom. What do we find then later? We find when the angels are coming to the city to destroy the city, Lot's right there comfortable sitting, sitting in Sodom at the gate, which really would almost imply some form of public recognition for him. Now, we know that Lot, he was a saved man. He was vexed by the conduct in Sodom. Uh, but he didn't have enough conviction to get out of there. He was miserable. And may I say that every Christian who abides in such worldly ways, they are miserable if they're a true Christian. They're not, they can't be content. You cannot be content in the way of the wicked uh, if you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you. So the godly needs to be abstinent from the world lest they grieve God and, uh, and really have no heavenly reward. I think there's an aspect there. But notice with me letter B tonight. All right. We see these traits of the blessed man, the godly man. We find, firstly, he is absent from the world. He doesn't walk in their counsel, doesn't go down their way, doesn't sit with the scoffers. But letter B, we see a great, great uh, application here for us in one reason why he doesn't do what he does with the wicked. Notice he has an appetite for the word of God. He has an appetite for the word. In verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law, he meditates day and night. I read that, and I just I rejoice, but it's also a challenge to me. I mean, this is, this is a wonderful statement. You think about the contrast, that the wicked are over on their path, they're doing their thing, they're delighting in all the sin and wickedness, but this blessed man, the, tr- the one who is truly happy, the one who is truly satisfied, the one who truly uh, has joy, this man is a man that's not in that way, the wicked, but instead his delight is in the law of the Lord. Now think about it. What do we delight in the most? Do we delight in the things of the world or the truths of the word of God? Now the word delight here simply refers to joy and delight. And, and this blessed man enjoys and loves the word of God. I believe this, that every Christian should love the word of God. You should cherish it. It's precious to me. It should be precious to you. Every Christian, I believe, uh, loves the scriptures, um, and that is what's important to us. There's, now there's, there's nothing wrong in finding delight in things in this world that are not sinful in and of themselves. Uh, we delight in certain things. We find enjoyment in certain things, right? I delight in a good game of golf. I delight in a trip to Andy's ice cream. I delight in uh, just a vacation to the beach. I mean, those things aren't sinful, but understand that God has given us richly all things to enjoy so long as they're not sinful. But there's a sad trend today where it seems that more and more professing believers delight in worldly things rather than spiritual things. More so. There's an imbalance and uh, even a total opposite effect of those who profess to believe. And this is evidenced in the neglect of scripture and local church worship. And we have to ask ourselves, what do we delight in? Do we delight in the word of God, do we enjoy it when we take a moment to read the Scriptures and listen to God speak? Now listen to some more Scripture that says speaks of this very truth. Psalm one nineteen, which the whole chapter of Psalm one nineteen really is, is is really an expression of the psalmist's love for the Word of God. But here's just to, just to show you just a few passages from there. Psalm one nineteen forty seven: For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. Verse 16 of Psalm 119, I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Think about this. Why, why would the word of God be the delight of God's people? Because it's through the word of God that we were birthed again. Now, think of this. Remember what, what James said, by his word he begat us or brought us forth. Uh, Peter said that we've been born again of that incorruptible seed. And and the Spirit of God and the Word of God, they work together in bringing us to life. You see, through the Word of God, we have tasted of that spiritual depth. Uh, Our nature has been changed by His Word, and it has become our desire. You see, there's nothing in this world that compares to the Word of God. It truly is precious beyond all other things. David writes again in Psalm 19 and verse 10 and when he's speaking about the word of God. Go read that chapter and here's how he defines and describes it. He says, more to be desired are they than gold. Talking about the commandments and law of the Lord. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Now, if you could have a brick of gold, if you had a choice right now, doing a brick of gold and your Bible in your hand, which one would you choose? Which one would you choose? think about that. We'd have to choose the scriptures. We'd have to choose the word of God. But the majority of the world would say, oh, give me that gold. I don't need the Bible, right? Listen to Romans 7 verse 22, what Paul says. He says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. He's talking about his war with the flesh. He's at war with his flesh in that passage. But after the inner being, in his inner man, the new man He delights in the law of God in his inner being. You see, a mark of the godly is a hunger and delight in the word of God. True Christians love the scriptures. Do you love the scriptures? But notice this, beyond the delight of the law of the Lord, there's another aspect in this verse. What else does the godly man do? The Bible says, on his law, he meditates day and night. He meditates day and night. Now, what is it to meditate on something? Meditate on something. The word meditate here refers to, to read in an undertone, to mutter while meditating. It conveys the idea of, of chewing on it, of thinking on it, of, of processing it, of digesting it. All these things. Charles Spurgeon comments on this. I have this quote on your notes, I think. he takes, Speaking of this psalmist, he says, He takes a text and carries it with him all day long, and in the night watches when sleep forsakes his eyelids, he museth upon the word of God. Meditation upon the scriptures was a a practice long ago that I believe was very beneficial to the church. Uh, But it's not practiced much today. It's it's almost a, a, a forgotten practice, but it's one of the most rich practices that you can have in your Christian life is to take time to meditate and think upon the word of God. You see, this is being in the word of God every day. It's day and night he's doing this, that he's reading and thinking about the word of God. And friend, if you truly delight in the word, I believe that you will be in the word. We do what we delight in, don't we? We do what we delight in. We take part in what we delight in. You know, I delight um, in ice cream. Do you? Why do you eat ice cream? Because you delight in it, Right? I found black raspberry chip over at Andy's. Been looking for that flavor. It's not a real popular flavor, so it's hard to find. They sell it in the the quart and the in the pint, and so I bought them out. They had two left. I said, "Give me both of them." <laughs> and so I took it home, and I thought, "Well, I'll just eat this over a long period of time." I bought them, you know, about a week ago. They're about gone. And, you know, I delight in them. So what I delight in, I kind of want to stay in, right? We, we think about anything that we delight in. That's what we. Do. That's what causes us to do that. And so if we delight in the scriptures, we'll be in the scriptures. Scriptures will be part of us. So is the word of God something you delight in? If you read it in the morning, does it ever come to your mind later that day? Psalm 119, 97, one more verse from that chapter. He says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. So his appetite is for the word of God. Notice with me, letter C, that he is abundant in his walk. We see this in verse 3. He's abundant or he's fruitful. Fruitful in his life. Look at verse 3 with me. He is like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. So this blessed man, this godly man, There's something about his life that's different. There's something being produced in his life. And that is a fruitful walk. Now this is beautiful imagery. He's like a tree planted by the streams of water. How beautiful are the the scenes of trees by rivers and flowing water. How how beautiful is that landscape. And this this is the picture that the psalmist and God is giving of this blessed man. Now how significant is it that a tree is next to the river water here? Well, what's the water do for the tree? The water... Is what nourishes that tree that it yields its fruit in its season. Through the godly man, the Lord bears out fruit at the right time when it's needed. And this fruitfulness is directly linked to the right nourishment to bear it. If you want a fruitful tree, it needs water. It needs the right sustenance. It needs the right nourishment. And friend, we think about the Christian life, the same principle applies. If we want to be fruitful... We need the right spiritual nourishment to our life. And this blessed man has it. He's abstaining from the world. He's abiding in the word. Those two things are critical. And this is the result of this. He's like this tree that bears its fruit in its season. We see much in the scriptures about the Christian life and the, uh, and the fruit that he bears. And I want to read a passage here in John 15 from uh, Jesus as he's teaching his disciples uh, about bearing fruit. In John 15, in verse 4 through verse 8 for a moment, he's talking to his disciples, teaching them. This is some of his last teachings, just hours before he goes to the cross. And uh, he gives them this teaching on abiding in him. And he says in verse 4 of John 15, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches, whosoever abides in me, and I in him. He it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. We could dissect that and preach that whole text, but we don't have time for that. But what's Jesus pointing out there? Number one, we as his disciples are made to bear fruit. We only bear fruit in connection to him, abiding in him, and that this fruit bears glory to, the, to glory to God. We cannot bear fruit without him, right? And so this life of this godly man is fruitful, and it shows he's prosperous. This is what all of us in Christ are to be is fruitful. Fruit is what gives evidence of what kind of tree we are, right? Jesus taught in Matthew 7, you'll know a tree by its what? fruit the same way you look at a person's life their fruit bears out who they are Paul's desire for the Philippians was this in Philippians 1 11 he said that they would be filled with fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God He wants them to be fruitful see the godly man is fruitful as this tree because of what is said in verse 1 and 2 he has a proper spiritual nourishment to be fruitful Notice also what he says about this tree. He says, its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, it will prosper. This is a continuously prosperous tree. This shows us the longevity of the fruit in the life of this godly man. And here's the reality, too, for us as believers, is that our fruit has longevity. Our fruit is not just temporal in nature and impacting here. Our fruit goes on into eternity. It's eternal fruit. It's eternal fruit because what we do in Christ is always eternal. Now, contrast that to what the world wants to do, that all is going to pass away. First John 2, 17, The world is passing away along with its desires, but whosoever does the will of God abides forever. So, understand that what we bear in Christ lasts forever, unlike everything else in this world that's going to fade away. And truly, this is the central marker here, that blessed is this man. Blessed is this godly man who abstains from the world. His delight is in the word of God. He's abiding in the word of God day by day and night by night. And his life is like that tree, that fruitful tree by streams of water. And it shows in his life. So that's, that's who we want to be, right? But there's another contrast here in this chapter. And it's not the godly man, but we see, number two, we see the godless man. The man who doesn't know God. The man who is ungodly. And there's three things I want to point out about him briefly. All right? And that's in verse 4 through verse 6. But there's also more contrast here with the righteous man I'll bring out. But notice with me, number one, as we look at verse 4, letter A, he is driven away in his sin. He's driven away in his sin. Now look at this. The wicked are not so. That's a direct contrast to what was all said about the godly man. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind... Drives away. This is the point. The wicked are not like this godly man. The wicked are not like him. What are they not like? They're not like this godly man who is living in such a way. They do not have what the godly man has. They do not do what the godly man does. They are on opposite path. They do not do opposite things. They don't know God. They don't know God. And notice the comparison here. He says that the wicked are like chaff that the wind drives away. What is chaff? What is this chaff he speaks of? Well, it was husks of winnowed grain or dried grasses which were burned or left to blow away with the wind. In other words, that aspect was worthless. They are just destroyed and gone off. They're driven away to perish. And what you find is that the illustration of chaff is common in judgment language. Very common in judgment language. And we see an example of that in Matthew 3. I want to read this to you. In Matthew 3 in verse 11 and 12, when John the Baptist is introducing Jesus on the scene. And you remember he's, he's, he's baptizing there at the River Jordan. And uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the, the religious elite of that day, they came to him. And uh, Jesus essentially, I mean, excuse me, John the Baptist essentially uh, calls them a brood of vipers. Uh, who's warned you to escape the wrath that's coming uh, because they were steeped in self-righteousness. They thought their religion made them righteous. But in turn, they were wicked. They were ungodly. And notice what he says here, Matthew 3, verse 11 and 12. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, And fire, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. What's he showing us here? That Christ, the judge, is going to do a separation. He's going to separate the wheat from the chaff. And the chaff will be driven away into unquenchable fire. What a sobering declaration that is. Uh, You you think about what's being said to the Pharisees and Sadducees. I mean, here's this religious group of people who think they've got God all figured out and that they're right with God and nobody else is. And John the Baptist just totally burst their bubble, tells them very plainly, do not think that because you have Abraham as your father that you're right with God. You're not. You see, Jesus was not going to deal lightly with their sin and rebellion, nor does he deal lightly with anyone's sin or rebellion. They would ultimately reject Christ, and we know that judgment would come on that generation. But this principle is true of the last day. There is a a separation taking place at the last day in which the wicked, those who reject Christ, they will be as the chaff driven away in their sin. Notice with me, letter B, this wicked man, this godless man in our text, He is deemed unworthy at the judgment. He's deemed unworthy at the judgment. Look at verse 5. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Essentially what's being said there is the wicked, they're not going to survive the judgment of God. They're not going to make it to the other side. They're not going to come through this. You see, once God's righteous wrath is poured out, on judgment day, who will be able to stand through such a thing? Nobody. The wicked speaking in Revelation at the sixth seal in Revelation 6.17, they say, they're crying out, for the great day of, of their wrath has come, and who can stand? The wicked recognize this. Now there's times in history when God has invoked his wrath and poured it out, such as the flood and other 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 occasions. But there's a future time of judgment that even the wicked will see that there's no escape for them. The wicked now, they like to try to hide. They like to try to put their head in the sand and act like everything's okay and no accountability to God. But the truth is, all of us are accountable to God, and the wicked will have their day coming to them. They know they will not pass through the other side of God's judgment. They will be consumed in his judgment. The wicked are unworthy to pass the test of God's judgment and be granted eternal life. But this brings us to another contrast here because he mentions the righteous man again. Notice this this ties together to why the blessed man is who he is. Why is this man different from the ungodly? What makes him godly? What makes him absent from the world? What makes him delight in and meditate upon God's law? What makes him fruitful and prosperous? Why does this blessed man come through the judgment of God to the other side? And there's only one reason. That is the grace of God. The grace of God. The grace of God upon him, demonstrated and applied through the redemptive work of Christ. This is what it all hinges upon. Jesus now notice what he says here in verse 5 the wicked will not stand in judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous the congregation of the righteous you see this congregation is the collective group of the saints of those who are righteous those who are God's people the wicked won't be there but all the saints will be there we get a glimpse of this in Hebrews 12 I want to read this passage to you Hebrews 12 and verse 22 through verse 24 as it speaks of where we've come to in Christ. And notice what he says here in Hebrews 12, 22 through 24. He says, but you, he's speaking to Christians, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly or congregation of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks of better word than the blood of Abel. You read that description, and that is, that is where we belong in Christ. This holy congregation. And the wicked have no place there, as the psalmist describes. You'll notice also that this congregation is called righteous Well, who can be called righteous when all men are sinfully depraved? Those who are righteous are those who are made righteous by the redemptive work of Christ. Because no man has any righteousness of his own. None of us. Now, we all would like to think we have some measure of righteousness in us, right? That's how the world thinks. Well, I'm not that bad of a person. The truth is, we all are evil. Isaiah tells us the righteousnesses, the good things that we do, there is filthy rags in God's sight. And, and so all of us were in that same boat. The difference is that grace snatched us out of that boat. Grace, through Christ, has brought us and clothed us in righteousness. Now, I love this verse because it summarizes the transaction that takes place at the cross. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul writes to the Corinthians and says for our sake he being Jesus or excuse me God made him being Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that we so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You read Romans 3 and you see about this gift of righteousness that is given to the believer. It's a gift. So here's the difference. The godly man here is clothed in the righteousness of Christ. The wicked man is clothed only in his filthy garments of sin. And it is the righteousness of Christ that has changed this godly man. It is the righteousness of Christ that has changed him, that has made him blessed. That has changed his life in which he will not go after the way of the wicked. But he loves the law of God. He loves the word of God. And he's a fruitful, fruitful person in his life like that tree by the rivers of water. He is justified. He is sanctified. He is glorified. The wicked are not so. Which brings us to letter C. Notice that this ungodly man, this godless man, not only do we find that he is deemed unworthy at the judgment, he's unworthy because of his sin and he has no righteousness of his own, but he is also destroyed forever in God's wrath. Now, You look at verse 6 and notice what it says, The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. There we have that way being mentioned again. The way of the righteous. What is the way of the righteous? The only way of the righteous is the way of Christ. Through him. What did Jesus say to Thomas and his disciples in John fourteen? Six? He said, I am the what? The way. I'm the path. I'm the road. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. So, so the way of the righteous is, is known to the Lord because the Lord knows his people. He has called them out. He has converted them. He has consecrated them for himself. And so this truth surely makes one blessed, happy, joyful. He says of Israel in the Old Testament, and we could, we could see a parallel here to uh, Christians in general, but Deuteronomy 33 and verse 29, happy are you, blessed are you. It's the same word. O Israel, who is like you, O people, saved by the Lord, the shield of your help and the sword of your triumph, your enemies shall come fawning to you and you shall tread upon their backs. Happy are you, O Israel, happy are you, O Christian, that God has saved you. Now while the way of the righteous is known to the Lord and will continue forever with the Lord. The way of the wicked shall perish. The word perish simply means to be lost forever, to be destroyed. And here's the reality is that someday all that was and is wicked will be forgotten and gone. Praise God for that. Never to influence again, never to have its way. And those who trod that path of wickedness will perish. Jesus said in Luke 13, 3, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The truth is that the wicked around us, why will they perish? Because of their wickedness, but also because they refuse to repent. And except God grant repentance, the wicked will not repent. So we see this contrast here. The godly and the godless. The godly man is who we ought to be, right? He really is a description of uh, the Christian who's walking and growing in the Lord. But the godless man, he does not know God. He rejects God, he scoffs God, he runs from God. We ought to pray for the godless, that the grace of God would reach them. So I want to encourage you to look at this passage, and as you see the blessed man here, he's a model for us, what we ought to live after, how we ought to live our daily life as Christians.